All right. Welcome back to another episode of Rethinking Revenue. With me, as always, my partner in crime, my friend, my mentor in many cases, uh, my counselor in many cases, uh, the person I vent to in many cases is uh, is James Roares. Pleasure and, to be here. Thanks, yeah, sir. yeah. And we are excited to have uh, a, a good friend, a recent friend to me, uh, a longtime guy, colleague of, of Jimmy. We are excited to have Andy Schaefer here. Uh, Andy, thank you for coming on. Why don't you start with uh, what your first memory was as a kid and then detail every year after that so we have a full <laughs> picture of who you are. Uh, I don't I don't think your podcast <laughs> listeners are going to want to hang on that long. <laughs> well, we've got four hours, so, uh, uh, yeah, so well, we've got some I, time. I, I, I want to be respectful to your listeners. <laughs> yeah, there we go. No, thank you for coming um, on. I appreciate your time today. And yeah, tell us a little bit about you, how you get started in the world, and, and give, give everyone the lowdown. Well, I'm, I was very fortunate to be uh, an integral part of a, of a family business that was started in 1929. Uh, my great-grandfather was a pharmacist in Columbus, Ohio. Guy came into his pharmacy that day and said, hey, Pops, I want to put this game on your counter. And um, this is before the Depression. And my great-grandfather said, sure, what the heck, man? He said, all right, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. I'll count all the pennies up and we'll split it. Sounds pretty informal, right? So he puts this huge, heavy, solid-state game up on my great-grandfather's counter. And it, you, you would shoot ball bearings for five shots for a penny. Five shots for a penny. Today, it probably cost wow. you, I don't know, several Bitcoin, I'm guessing. Um, so the guy, the guy, the sales guy comes back in a couple of weeks, takes his key, opens up the coin door, opens up the coin door on this thing, and pennies go spewing all over my great-grandfather's counter. And my great-grandfather looks at him and says, man, I'm in the wrong business. And how many times have we all said that, right? Man, yeah. I'm in the wrong business. I need to be doing something else. And so my great-grandfather had the had the wherewithal, even though he knew nothing about it, uh, sold his pharmacy and started Schaefer Music Company, which it was also ironically at the time when the jukebox was coming out. So the jukebox, the advent of the jukebox was at the exact same time. So somehow he talks my great-grandmother into dumping this incredible pharmacy down on Central and Broad on the west side, down in the bottoms of Columbus, sells the business, gets into the music business, very entrepreneurial and gutsy and everything else, uh, and basically started Schaefer Music Company up and uh, started putting jukeboxes out all over Ohio. And actually, I just found out only a couple of years ago, was literally putting these things, these juke, these music boxes, they called them back in the day, all the way down into Florida. So he and my great-grandmother would get in the car and Jimmy, instead of the collection route, just being in Columbus, they would go all the way down through Kentucky, down into Florida, collecting these music boxes, and then come all the way back up from Florida <laughs> to Columbus. <laughs> so he was counting pennies. He was counting pennies all the way down from Columbus, wow. all the way down to Florida. So that was the birth of our, our family business. Uh, it evolved into Schaefer Distributing Company, which is still very prominently in the United States and uh, represents all kinds of not just jukeboxes, but pool tables and vending equipment and games and entertainment that that people buy to put into their locations, you know, like Dave and Buster's and, and main event and all kinds of bowling facilities and family entertainment facilities all over the United States. Boldly, back in 1988, though, my uh, father, Steve, who's the third generation, um, very, very 
uh, brilliantly went outside the lines, as we all like to say, and broke the mold. It was very taboo for a distributor to ever compete, obviously, against your customers, right? The guys that were buying the jukeboxes and the games and putting them out all over Ohio and West Virginia, Kentucky, and so forth. My dad decided that it was in the family's best interest, and I was nearing the end of my college career at the same time, to get into the street business, the street operations business of owning and operating video games and jukeboxes and actually going out, collecting the cash and servicing them. So my dad created uh, Geo, Geo Amusement back in September of 1988 and very quickly turned that into being Schaefer Services. I graduated from Elon College, studied abroad for a while, came back and uh, January 3rd of 1990 started at Schaefer Services. and. Um, Started on the bottom, just like my dad did. Uh, I was wearing polyester and walking into some of the hardest, toughest, worst areas in the city of Columbus, down on Parsons Avenue, right across the street from Buckeye Steel. Um, West side, bottoms, far east side, near east side. So I was I was getting the kind of education that no college can prepare you for. This was this was a diploma from the streets. (laughs) And if you. If you survived it, then you're, you know, you, you, you get a badge of honor from, from your customers. So really, it was a twofold. One, I was learning a brand new business that our family had gotten into. But I was also, I think, in my dad's eyes, trying to earn the respect of the hundreds of customers that we had in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. So um, that was the beginning of it. You know, to fast forward, I was a salesperson calling on customers all over Columbus, Ohio, trying to work on commission and a little bit of salary at the same time. I was married, just starting to have kids. Life was changing and evolving and um, finally had an opportunity uh, about the mid-2000s, early 2000s to get into a vice presidential role. So I paid my dues for quite a long time at Schaefer and uh, started to elevate inside the company. And um, uh, we were, we had changed the, well, actually we were still Schaefer services and, um, 2008 where Jimmy and I were talking about this on our email the other day to me is probably the, one of the biggest pivot marks in the history of our company. And 2008 was the year Obama was running for president. And this is where I had a, uh, education, let's say in what government regulation can and cannot do. Um, This was the exact same year that the uh, city of Columbus was being targeted for non-smoking. And the politicians on the other side of the fence, on the left side of the fence, knew exactly what they were doing. They knew that this presidential campaign was going to draw, obviously, 10 times, 100 times, probably, the amount of voters out to the polls. Right. I mean, when a presidential election is on versus just a local election, the, the, the quantity of votes quintuple. So they knew that the voters were going to come out in droves. They also knew with a very popular uh, Democratic candidate and, and Barack Obama, they were going to draw a lot of liberal people out on that left side. Well, come come to find out our constitutional or actually our uh, our citywide ban on smoking was on that ballot at the, at the exact same time. And I um, fought extremely hard on the other side of the fence to protect uh, basically the bar owner community, the restaurant community. We had about 450 cigarette machines out in central Ohio at that time, which I in the previous years had collected quite a bit. 
And even though I'm a non-smoker, that whole bar, restaurant, bowling, proprietor side of the world just really didn't have a shot in Hades of, of going up against the American Cancer Society <laughs> and, and all the big bazookas politically that were, that were coming down the pipe. So I had an incredible learning lesson. Uh, I was deeply involved in politics, in city politics, and uh, learned the evils and the underbelly of, of being involved in business and, and, and not being deeply entrenched in politics. And the biggest lesson I took away from that, you guys, is if you want to get something done politically that's going to benefit either you or your customers, you need to be the one that's proactively putting the legislation together. Because by the time you're on your heels and by the time you're finding out about these things, it's already done behind closed doors. That's amazing. So, Andy, I love the story, and I know, I know we're getting to a a uh, a seismic shift in the industry. Um, maybe you can talk more about this political battle. How did it? How did it? Um, how did it end up? And then how did it impact the biz? I'd like to jump into the challenge it created for you, and then and then kind of mm -hmm. how you address that challenge. Uh, yeah. Once it was in your face. Yeah. Yeah. So. Just like there is with any legislation, I think, you know, it, 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 it by the city of Columbus and probably the state of Ohio election laws, you have to obviously get enough signatures to get something on the ballot. So by the we found out about this non-smoking ban. Actually, it started the whole non-smoking ban actually started. I can't recall if it started in California or if it started in New York, because, you, you know, that's the way things normally work. If you sit back and look at the political landscape, it always happens on the coast first. And then it works its way inward. Well, um, so I was aware because I was on a national trade association. I was aware of smoking and, and non-smoking and what this was doing to uh, negatively affect our coin drop revenues inside these bars and bowling alleys and our, our customers' establishments. So that's where emotionally I got so attached to this. But Columbus was very, very quickly behind California and New York. Um, surprisingly, but again, I think politically it was all tied into the fact that we had this huge movement with Barack Obama. We knew that all these, you know, uh, people were going to be coming out in droves to be able to vote for a presidential election. So probably Jimmy, I would say early, late, late winter of 08 was when that issue officially probably hit the ballot. And that's when I decided I was going to have to rally customers that they had nobody on their side they didn't have anybody legislatively or lobbying wise yet to, to take the reins over they weren't organized the the bar industry was not an organized group of people and i was kind of the guy that put my hand up and said okay we've got the most to risk at schaefer not just because of the 450 cigarette machines that represent 35 percent of our gross revenue which was huge wow. it's huge um but because of my friends in the industry in California and New York, I was also gathering data on what the inability for people that come into the bars and smoke, how much your jukebox revenues drop, how much the drinking revenue drops. Everybody's revenues drop uh, considerably when those smokers aren't in there smoking. Smoking and drinking actually chemically gives off the exact same endorphins in your brain. That's why those two things kind of go together. Smoking and drinking go together is because the endorphin buzz that we get off that tends to coincide with each other. One kind of feeds the other. Um, so politically, 
I started rallying troops. I started getting with my connections and the bowling proprietors in town. I started getting with the uh, Restaurant Bar Association in Columbus, Ohio. And we all started kind of slowly putting our sides together. Now, I had uh, competing coin companies, which, believe it or not, there were three of them outside of Schaefer that we were all competing for the same clients, decided that they were going to fragment. It was the stupidest thing on the planet was for them to go off and try to go do their own thing. They represented probably, you know, Schaefer probably had at the time, you know, maybe 65 or 70 percent market share in central Ohio. So these guys were much smaller and decided, nope, I'm not going to get in with the Schaefer's. I'm not going to get in with the powerful group. We're not going to unite for once and go against this and fight this. So. That really confused a lot of the people in central Ohio and caused a lot of money to go in different places. It didn't all funnel into Brad Cerconi, Jim, Jimmy and I's good friend, helped start and run this campaign for me that we called Can the Band. <laughs> that was the name of our campaign was Can the Band. <laughs> nice. And um, so I was in a fundraising mode trying to run Schaefer, banging the drum, waving the flag, trying to get attention brought to us. I was in. I was testifying down at city council. I was testifying and actually, I don't know if anybody saw DeSantis and Nikki Haley going at it last night, but I was in one of those kinds of debates at a church in Clintonville uh, against a woman on city council that I can't stand by the name of Charlita Tavares. And um, that was, it was fun. It was interesting. I, I enjoyed the debates. Um, I enjoyed presenting our case. Um, but um, obviously, in 2008, uh, there was a massive outpouring of voters to, to vote President Obama in, and our our percentage of loss probably was like close to 70-30. We probably only got about 30% to vote in favor of Can the Ban. And then shortly thereafter, guys, that's when I woke up the next day after getting our asses kicked. I hope I'm allowed to say that on this. Um, and my general manager, Rick Murray, came to me and put his arm around me. And he said, you know what, Shafe? He said, we've been preparing for this, believe it or not, for the last five to eight years. And I said, you know, my tail was so far between my legs because I had worked so hard to pull all this off and got killed. Kind of like a high state in the cotton bowl. You just walk away with your tail <laughs> between your legs and your head down going, man, I just had my ass kicked. Um, but Rick Murray puts his arm around me. He was a former bar owner and was our general manager. And he said, Shafe, he said, the value of our dart leagues and pool leagues to our customers just went up about fivefold because our dart leagues and our pool leagues pulled people in, whether you're a smoker or not, it committed people to coming into our bars and our locations on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday nights, right? It really, really, and I was at the beginning, I was like, yeah, okay, Rick, thanks for pacifying me, but it really did. So Schaefer's ability to develop these dart leagues and these pool leagues for these customers of ours years and years and years before the can the van situation hit us proved to be a massive uh, life-saving boat, I would say, not just for our customers, but probably for Schaefer as well. That's incredible. An incredible story, um, Andy. And I think what's, what's really cool about the bit is, um, well, first off, I mean, I've never met anyone in business more locally connected and willing to do whatever it takes, not just for the business, but for, but for your customers and your customers' businesses. And you were in a unique situation where your business and theirs are, they're just inextricably tied together. I mean, you cannot separate mm -hmm. the two. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what may have been missed or what may be missed in the story is the fact that really you are not only responsible for Schaefer's uh, revenue, but you're responsible for your bar owner's revenue. I mean, you were in this context of rethinking revenue. You were constantly tasked with the idea of helping your client, your clients, your customers, who I'm sure became friends over years, years and years, make money. You're responsible yeah. for their revenue as well as your own. And I think that it probably either developed in you or or um, allowed you to kind of develop this this amazing creativity in putting pieces together to create stuff that never existed before uh, to make everybody happy. I'm, I'm curious if you could, I'd love to have you just talk a little bit about what it takes to have that kind of creativity and what it, what it meant to you, to, to the bar owners, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. Jimmy, um, I think a lot of that came from just my DNA. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, hustle, I think I, hustle, I right? think, yeah, I mean, I was always as as a young athlete. I mean, I was definitely not the thickest and strongest kid on the football field or the lacrosse field, right? But I, I fought like like uh, the devil every single sport. I never gave up until the play was long over. So I guess that that was I, I i give kudos to my to my parents and and my dna that i just never had that that option to quit and um the only time i quit athletically in my life and this was the lesson i was taught i was i was in junior golf playing in probably my first or second tournament as a 12 year old it was a marathon oil junior golf tournament i played terrible on the first nine over raymond memorial over across from Scioto. And uh, I told the kids that I was playing with that I wasn't feeling really well. And I went in and sat inside and I knew that if I called my mom right away, I'd be in trouble because she'd say, wait a minute, you're you're supposed to still be out on the golf course, not in the halfway house eating a hot dog and a Coke. So I sat there for over two hours, two and a half hours, promptly waiting for all the guys to start coming in. So then I knew my mom was going to show up and she goes, how'd you do? And I said, oh, I didn't do very well, blah, blah, blah. So my dad opens up the newspaper the next morning, back in the old days when newspapers were read in the morning and you would see the stats for the day previous. He opens up the sports page, looks down the stats of the Marathon Oil Golf Tournament and sees WD next to my name. Withdrawal. Dad puts the paper down and goes, wait a minute, what? what's, what's this WD? And of course, I'm like 12 years old, kind of doing you know what in my underwear at this point because I just got busted. And I said... Yeah, I can't because I've never been good at lying. My mom said, You're a terrible liar. So I'm looking at my dad, I'm urinating down my leg at the breakfast table, and and I'm like, Well, I played like crap and told these guys I wasn't feeling good. And he looked at me and he said, This is the last time I'm going to do this. First time and the last time. He said, I'm taking your golf clubs away from you for a certain amount of weeks. And that just crushed me, man. It just crushed me in the middle of the center in the summer that I didn't have this outlet, you know, and it made me. And I, so Jimmy, that, I don't know if that was the first time I never quit, but it was definitely the last time I ever quit. Um, Mm. so I think that passion was, was just totally from my upbringing. It was from coming from an athletic family, a competitive family, being in a family business, um, Jimmy, you come from a family business. You, you, your family comes from from scraping every dime off the the kitchen floor in order to pay your your food purveyors and beverage purveyors the next day. Um, so it's fight or flight, man. 
And that that cigarette battle scared the bejesus out of us because, Ed, as I said a minute ago, that the, the cigarette revenue for Schaefer at that time represented 35%. I don't know, maybe you guys do, but I don't know any company that can survive losing 35% of their gross revenue and still surviving. It's It's practically unheard of. So we unfortunately had to go through a two-phase system after that. Uh, we had to go into a layoff mode. I think we had 56 employees before the smoking ban. And once we pulled all the cigarette machines off the streets, which was a heap of junk, uh, a, 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 a pile of metal that you guys can't even fathom, uh, that we also had to figure out what we were going to do with. Um, yeah, so we went through a layoff period. And then um, that's when I made a decision uh, within the company and with the leadership of the company that we cannot be dependent on alcohol and tobacco type locations. That the the history of the coin op industry from the time that that music box started in 1929, you know, was all about serving mom and pop bar owner or serving that bowling alley, and nobody ever took their blinders and did anything past that, Jimmy. And and the entrepreneurial side kicked in at that moment. That's fight or flight, right? Um, we had to lay people off, which is the worst thing on the planet in a family business because you know them, you know their mom, you know their moms, you know their pets, you know their wives, you know their kids. It sucks. It's terrible. It's hard uh, for everybody. Um, so we, we went through a layoff period and basically that's when we made a major shift in the company to say, you know what, we're going to get into family entertainment. We're going to get more vested, more creative, and more dedicated into renovating bowling proprietors and bowling centers and the family fun centers were really hadn't even really started up. Water parks, the, the water park craze at, in the Midwest, which exploded up in the Chicago area and the Wisconsin area and, you know, for people to travel to and do things in the winters. Those were the, Jimmy, those were the decisions that we started making, which required massive investments. I mean, we're not talking about putting a pool table and a dartboard and a cigarette machine for ten or $15,000, $20,000 into a bar with a jukebox. Now we're talking about Schaefer making quarter million dollar investments, you know, to go into places like Wyandotte Lake at the zoo or going into these water parks, uh, whether they're in Columbus or whether they might be potentially geographically. So the other thing that we also had to do with respect to the customers that Schaefer distributing was selling to was to try to expand our business, but not step into areas or customers that were buying off my other family business. That was extremely, um, it was like stepping around a minefield <laughs> because Joe Blow up in Cleveland, Ohio, or Nancy Blow over in Dayton, Ohio, you know, may have been buying from Steve Schaefer for the last 30 years. And Andy Schaefer can't go walking into and doing business with a water park in Dayton or Cleveland uh, without violating kind of Soprano-like, right? You don't want to be violating their territory. So there was, there was a lot of catch-22s going on and a lot of feathers being ruffled. But um, we always respected the little guy and the middle guy. We never, my dad never, ever, uh, from day one at Schaefer Services and Schaefer Entertainment ever wanted to step on the little guy that was feeding Schaefer Distributing. So we always somehow ran some sort of a fine balance. Um, so 
getting into family entertainment, expanding our, our, our geographic footprint, Jimmy. And that's also probably shortly after that is when we decided to go back over to Indianapolis and buy the Indianapolis branch that ironically, my great grandfather started in Indianapolis in the early fifties. So there was a full, there was a full, full 360 effect going on over in our Indianapolis branch as well. Wow. That's a, I'll tell you that as you're talking about some of these different things, um, you know, you kind of you kind of think about a, a history of work or different different even employers that you may work for, and you think about some issues you have to deal with. When you start looking at external factors like this, I mean, this epitomizes the whole SWOT analysis. When you look at the threats, it's external environment and causing these shifts. So when you start thinking about this and imposing, uh, how do you how do you protect your business? And I think your that fight or flight response that that. James talked about that you had, or that you talked about that um, I think is, is a couple things. Number one, it says something about the fight for your customers. I, I, I think there's obviously the fight for your own company, but I, when anybody who goes into politics has a couple screws loose anyway, you did it on behalf of your customers. So I, really I think did. that says, I yeah, I think that yeah. says a lot yeah. too. And, and yeah. you're trying to advocate, you're being the good advocate. And of course the indirect benefit is you, you don't want to, disrupt your business, but the fact that you're going to go to those lengths for you to advocate for your customers says a lot about a business owner. So again, kudos to you in the DNA, uh, in the Schaefer family. I think that starting from 1929, I think you said, and mm-hmm. you know, up until now you're, you're pushing almost hundred years now that, uh, yep. this family has been doing some things. I, I think there's a lot of things we could go back and, and learn here. So the, you know, I love this talk about, um, you know, in some cases, company problems are their own spawn, right? They cause their own problems. But others, you have environmental or, or external or industry, things like this that you just have to react to. So I I think this is one that at least the current guests that we've had haven't experienced this kind of external environment that has required you, required, required a shift. But beyond the shift, it's you had to weather the storm, which is 35% of the revenue is no joke. Absolutely not. So you had to gone. Yeah, gone. You had to weather the storm <laughs> first. No pun intended. Poof. Yeah. It was it was gone like a cigarette. Yeah. Yep. You had to weather yeah. the storm first, and then you gotta figure out how to rebuild and, and grow from there. So uh so yeah, kudos to you, the family, the team, uh for for getting through that. And uh and and yeah, I think there's a lot we can unpack. You know, one thing I wanna ask you that you know, post postmortem, uh, you know, if you fast forward maybe <clears throat> maybe a few years after that, what did that rebound strategy look like? And whether intentional, unintentional. So after the you know, the layoffs had to happen and you had to kind of figure out that that whole thing, what did what did that thought process look like to say, this is how we're gonna look at our either different entities, our different landscape, you know, the whole water park thing and the, and how do you go wide potentially on the category side? How did those thought processes happen and discussions? Like what were the brainchilds? What were the conversations of the room? Take me through that, like postmortem and then mm. into this, like, how do we grow and how do we continue to be what we were before? Well, that is a lot to unpack. And I don't know if I have the uh, gray matter to be able to accurately go back in there and extract all that. But one, the first thing, Ed, listening to you that I'm trying to chronologically dial back on, and this is right around when Jimmy and I were, were really starting to get tight, 
is I was rising in the ranks of our National Trade Association, the AMOA. And that is point operators and distributors and manufacturers all under one umbrella representing our industry. And I was I was paying my dues and climbing that ladder. So right, you know, let's see, the Obama election was 2008. I was voted president of AMOA in 2011. I was divorced. I had two young kids. I was coaching lacrosse, trying to run Schaefer um, as best as I could with a Columbus branch and an Indianapolis branch. So I had a lot. I had a lot going on. And fortunately, Rick Murray, the guy I mentioned earlier, who was the general manager, um, was still managing on a day-to-day level the Schaefer branch in Columbus. We also had a manager over in Indianapolis who was a surrogate of our Columbus office that I kind of grew up with running over there. So if I hadn't had those two guys in that those seats running on the ground, the Schaefer branches in Columbus and Indianapolis, I don't think I would have been a very good AMOA president for the one-year term that I was in there because I was traveling. I was in the air more than I was on the ground. And I... uh, (laughs) Um, it was a great experience. And, and, and I think uh, the story that we just touched on about the 08 experience, we also have state organizations. And that's what the AMOA president does a lot of traveling for during that is visiting individual states during their state shows. And um, I think a lot of that experience that I did with Can the Band really, really gave me an incredible amount of backdrop and education formally on politics so when I went to D.C., you know, and I'm lobbying in D.C. or I'm lobbying at the Ohio State House uh, on behalf of the company. But you're right, Ed, the, the symbiotic relationship between the coin operator and the, and the tavern owner or the bowling proprietor is direct. You know, I mean, you can go into a bar and if you don't like Bud Light, you can order a Miller Light generally. Right. And, and in our case, we are truly or we're truly dependent upon that tavern owner, that bowling alley or that movie theater being successful. So our vision, and it came from guys like Brad Zirconi, who worked with us and helped Schaefer for a very, very long time. And guys like James Royce was helping us figure out ways not just to help Schaefer, but how can we drop that even down another layer, another level and saying, how can we help Mr. and Mrs. Bar owner get better? How can we help them get more profitable? Because I learned a long time ago, if I can make Mr. and Mrs. Bar Owner more profitable, guess what happens to Schaefer? <laughs> they come Absolutely. right up with it. They because the the old cliche is is you know our proof was always in the cash box. Remember the old story I told you about with my great grandfather, where the guy came yeah. in and opened the coin door, and he's goes spewing all over the counter. So. That old cliche is the proof was in the cash box really never really changes when you're in you're in that industry. So um, running running AMOA for a year and traveling the country and meeting operators and representing an unbelievable amount of people nationally uh, was one of the greatest highlights and privileges of my life. Oh, eight, that whole drama of can the band helped me kind of learn that. Um, and and uh, as far as the aftershock goes, um, again, the downsizing was the hardest part of it. And uh, things started, believe it or not, because we were dealing with larger accounts now, things, yes, the investment was bigger. The investment was much more broad and more extensive than we had ever dealt with before. But the returns were also starting to come back. And at the exact same time, guys, there was a very, very innovative thing going on in our industry, which was to get rid of the cash and go with the, with the card system. 
you know, you, you guys probably remember 20, 15 years ago when you would go to a David Buster's and now it's almost in every game center. Instead of you putting dollar bills in, instead of you putting quarters in, you're, you're buying out of a machine like this right here, you're buying a card with $50 on it, right? And you're loading that card and you're using it in all the games. So a cashless paint, the cashless payment systems um, was a, a massive profit opportunity at the exact same time. Schaefer Entertainment was starting to say, nope, we're not we're not just going to focus on the bars anymore. We're going to start making big investments in big locations. So that's those were huge technological turning points. Touchtunes, as James brought up a little bit ago, too, was a was a sole provider that we dedicated ourselves to when we made the decision pre-08. I made a technological decision to get rid of CDs. It was a very expensive, labor-intensive, pain-in-the-ass system to go out when you have 350 CD jukeboxes with 100 CDs on all of them, and your poor Schaefer representatives are constantly pulling off artwork and pulling on new CDs all the time. Touch Tunes uh, in the digital age had given us the opportunity to directly download music and artwork to those jukeboxes, which is what everybody is familiar with nowadays. So there was some really cool technological advancements that were going on that fortunately I was on the cutting edge of because of Schaefer Distributing, because of the fact that I had mentors and coaches like James Royce and Brad Sircone who were outside of our industry going, Hey, knock, 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 Andy, you need to figure this out, man. You need to, you need to break down these barriers of what used to be done 20, 30, 40 years ago and start looking at this technology and figuring out how can you make more money for your customer? And when you do that, Schaefer is going to be more profitable. So that kudos Kudos to the guy in the low left corner and and the Italian friend who's not on here with us today because I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have, I wouldn't have had the confidence probably to 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 leap over those hurdles. We were the first company in the entire state of Ohio to have no CDs on our route whatsoever. We 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 sold them all off. We were the first all digital point op company in the state of Ohio. And we were the first company in Ohio to successfully have soft tip dart league. So we were innovating everywhere at along the line. We were pushing that envelope better and further than probably most coin operators would because they didn't have the resources like we did. We were fortunate to have Schaefer Distributing and my dad working hand in hand with Schaefer Entertainment. So that was that was our big hmm. advantage was was having that massive distributorship on one side feeding Schaefer Entertainment over on the other. Yeah. So it, it, I love the stories, uh, Andy, because, um, you know, it, for your, you were, you were not only, you know, focused on helping your clients make revenue or drive revenue, but you were also, you know, kind of their ad hoc or their out external R and D group. Um, you know, there's a, I think what Ed was getting at with, with regard to this idea of the, the thought process, um, you know, growing up in a family business, there wasn't a lot of, I wouldn't call at least the family business that I was in highly professionalized, right? We all were <laughs> self-taught, right? And it's not like we hired people from Fortune 500 companies to come in and run our business, right? So there's a there's a level of uh, the 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 type of entrepreneurship that you're that you're dealing with is really that self-taught, uh, instinctual, and you you get by by you get by. You, on your guile and your your creativity and your charm and all that stuff 
But you guys were investing real money in innovation, expanding your markets beyond bars, for example, but you're also investing a ton of time and effort in helping the, the technology providers innovate. When you think about how technology has made old coin op obsolete, but then created new opportunities in this digital age, you guys had to be on the forefront of that. And I just know from working with you, you know, there might have been 20 ideas you had to pursue and vet and test and validate for every one that might have actually worked. That's a that's a huge commitment, a huge investment. Um, and to me, it's a it's just a great example of of the partnership that was required to make your whole your whole business, your whole industry work. Yeah, I think you're right. James, a lot of manufacturers um, use Schaefer Entertainment as their laboratory. Right. I mean, they they would, because of Schaefer Distributing, representing all these companies all over the United States and their lines, they had a lot of confidence in giving us kind of their betas, you know, and, and, and before formally releasing these things, they would they would hand this special piece of equipment over to Schaefer Entertainment for us to test drive, you know, and so that gave us a, a, a leg up as well with our customers to say, hey, uh, Travel Centers of America in Medina, Ohio, we want you to try this thing out for us, you know, and, and we're going to, you know, we're going to make sure that you get cutting edge equipment for your customers, you know, every six to nine months kind of a thing. So you're right. Yeah, there was a there was again there was this beautiful symbiotic relationship between manufacturers over to Schaefer Distributing, down to Schaefer Entertainment, and then Schaefer Entertainment directly out to the to, to the guys on the streets that you were alluding to. Yeah, yeah, and then in terms of I think just the the fact that you're the president of the biz and your background at least in the company, right? You mentioned you started in sales. I I guess I wonder from a again rethinking revenue perspective and thinking about you know, the seed that created um, this this innovation or ability to innovate, how much of that had to do with uh, your role as a sales guy? Uh, we, we talk a lot, we hear a lot about the value of having a president or CEO with a sales background versus a finance background versus a marketing background, et cetera. Mm. Uh, how much did that influence um, your success? Well, as I said a little while ago, there's no diploma on the planet that they can hand over to you for the street diploma. And there's, or the and street, there's no diploma the street, for sales. No. Right? There's no sales yeah. diploma out there. There's no certification. No, there's no there's no sales diploma. Um, yeah, you know, again, I, I did almost every job in the company, though, before before I got into sales. So I was earning my stripes filling up cigarette machines at 5.30 in the morning in these bars in the areas of town that you guys would never, ever drag your worst enemy into, okay? So I was earning my stripes by counting the money, you know, filling up the cigarette machines and doing all the all the rough and gruff, you know, stuff that, you know, you had to do and not just to earn your stripes on the streets, but I was earning my stripes inside the company. So I think that that transition Jim gave me confidence to allow me to take my natural ability into the sales world and put a Schaefer now finally out on the streets of Columbus. So I probably spent the first several years in polyester uh, reeking like uh, a smokestack, you know, going in and out of bars all day um, and coming home at night. So I think that, again, that that plus the upbringing of being on the other side of the fence in the industry, in the entertainment industry, being around my dad, um, 
you know, and, and, and then my brother who's several years younger, um, we all came up under that same umbrella, but the, the opportunity to work in the coin op world down on the ground, that's who Schaefer distributing was selling to for the first 70 years. They had never been in that receiving end on the streets before. So I think my dad was obviously pretty happy. I, I think with, with having a, a trusted family member on the streets, you know, carrying the name out on the streets of Columbus and then soon thereafter over in Indianapolis. And then one of the last things I did before departing um, the Schaefer Entertainment world was planting a big flag up in Detroit, Michigan, which I, I, I was extremely happy with. I think that was a, and it still is, it's a, it's a city that is on the comeback right now. I love every time I'd come out of Detroit, man, I was jamming Bob Seger and Stevie Wonder and pounding on the dashboard. I'm just like, I love this city. I love this city. So unfortunately, I haven't been able to see the fruits of my labors um, from Detroit, but but that was that was one of the brainchilds and, and, and eggs that I was cracking up there when I last left. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Andy, uh, I know that uh, your career, it's been it's been diverse. Um, I'd love it if maybe you could talk a little bit about the transition that you've made and where you are today and and um, and the, the kind of the passion, the 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 new passion that you have uh, in business? Well, I everybody's world changed personally and professionally going through COVID. And I was, I was about as close to what I thought was dying as I've ever had in my life. And my, my lovely wife was in Cincinnati taking care of her brother who was ill with leukemia. So I was by myself. I got COVID in 20, October of 20, when the world still really didn't know therapeutically <laughs> or medicinally how to handle it. And, and, um, I got it very easily just sitting in a car with a good buddy of mine. And two days later, this mutual friend of Jimmy and I sends me a text and says, get ready. And I'm like, get ready for what? (laughs) He said, I just tested positive for COVID. So I, I got deathly ill, um, got through it. Thank God. And, um, had to get over some long haul, long haul symptoms after that. And, Early December, I, I called my wife in Cincinnati and said, honey, I need to go down to my decompression chamber in Costa Rica and really ch- recharge my batteries. And um, I, I have these shorts, these workout shorts that's kind of my my mantra. And I, and I think you guys probably do it uh, subliminally every single day with your, your customers and clients. Is So I sat in Costa. I was at the W Hotel. The country had been shut down. I was like literally one of the first Caucasians to probably come from the United States down into Costa. I'm sitting there at this gorgeous W Hotel. I got the whole place to myself. And I'm sitting there with this mantra on my on my shorts, sweating my brains out. But I'm looking at this thing. And the mantra on my shorts that drives me is nothing changes if nothing changes. And um, that's what ignited me when I came back to really uh, prioritize my life, my health, my body, my friends. And um, that's when I made the decision in January of 21 to myself and my wife that I was going to, I was going to leave the family business. And it was an incredibly difficult decision to make because I knew what the ripple effects were going to be, you know, and this is the difference I think between, you know, working at an Inc 500 company versus working for a family business because I still have to sit down and have Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas, you know, with these people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right? They never I mean, go away. Yeah. So, um, 
I made that decision to leave the company, told my CFO, my dad, and my brother in a private meeting. Everybody, their jaws hit the ground. My dad threw up in his lap. Um, it was it was it was from beyond left field, that expression left field. If anybody knows where the Budweiser house is on the outside of Wrigley Field in Chicago, that's how far outside of left field this thing came from. Nobody saw it coming. So we made a great transition um, through the rest of the year. And Jimmy, I I, I needed some time. Uh, a, a mentor of mine, Charles Goldstock, who's the former uh, president and CEO of Sony Entertainment, but he was also the CEO of TouchTunes for about seven years, was a great mentor of mine uh, that said, basically, Andy, I'm not going to imitate him in his South African accent accent because I wouldn't do him justice. But um, he basically said, Andy, you've gone through this 32-year career. You went through the COVID. You just left your family business. You need to give your mind a chance to rest. And I never really thought anything of it other than I went, okay, sounds great. So I went down to Costa uncharacteristically. Instead of for five, six days, I decided to run a house out and stay down in Costa uh, for a month. And it was the greatest thing I could have ever done for myself. It really was taking care of myself. It was giving my body and my mind a chance to rest. So that was um, that was exactly two years ago, Jimmy. It was January of, of uh, 22 that I was down there. I, I purposely, Ed, did not have, you know, everybody says, don't ever leave a job until you know what you're doing on the other side. Don't ever do it. You know, that's the old school. My dad got upset at me. Everybody's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I go, I don't have an effing clue. I don't know. And you know what? For the first time in my life, that's okay. I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be all right. <laughs> and uh, came back from Costa and, and you know, really didn't have a, a hard game plan. And uh, a friend of mine from a long, long time ago who was a bar owner here in Columbus had, had started his own uh, production company up down in Dayton, Ohio. And he had successfully done a an incredible movie uh, documentary on the keyboardist for the Rolling Stones. And his dad had passed away. And I saw it on Facebook several months later. And I said, you know what? Once you come up to Columbus, I started just Ed, taking calls and meetings with everybody and anybody I could. Just I didn't know what to do. I felt like I was naked standing on the corner of High and Broad. I really I didn't know what to do. Jimmy knows this because this is when I was really talking to Jimmy quite a bit. You know, about trying to get – I'm so used to being so focused and so invigorated and having a game plan for the first time in my life. I didn't have one. And I really, really felt naked and, and almost blind and deaf and lost all at the same time. So I was really trying to figure out my way and um, came across this friend of mine, said, hey, I saw your dad passed away. Why don't you come up to Mirrorfield? Let's go have a drink together and let's toast your dad. Sitting there catching up. Hadn't seen this guy in 25 years. And all of a sudden, he looks over at me after telling me about his movie productions and documentaries. And he goes, you know what, Shafe? He goes, I think you'd be a, a really good executive producer. And I go, that's awesome, Alan. What the hell is that? <laughs> I'm like, what's an executive producer? So, yeah, Jimmy, coming into the fundraising role of raising money and attention and uh, funds for this documentary that we just uh, launched about a month and a half ago called Triangle Park. Uh, it's about the first uh, first NFL football game ever ever played. And it was at Dayton, Ohio. In Dayton, Ohio. Yep. Most people don't know. And, and 
we even got the, the god of college football, Kirk Herbstreet, on camera, who's from Dayton, Ohio, played football at Centerville, got him on camera saying, guys, I grew up eating and drinking football and playing football in Dayton, Ohio, and I didn't know this story. So um, it, was an, it was an unbelievable lesson, Jimmy, uh, that I found out I didn't like. I didn't like asking people for money. It was a really, really challenging, hard thing to do. Inflation was skyrocketing. People's portfolios were going down. Inflation was going up. Uh, we had midterm elections, and here I am. I kept a spreadsheet. You'd be proud of me, Jimmy. I kept a spreadsheet of every single person and company that I solicited. Most of them I did know. A lot of them I didn't know. Um, and I had over 125 people individually or companies that I, I tried to qualify and solicit uh, to be investors into this movie. And my batting average was under 10%, unfortunately. So I found out that that was something that I probably don't want to do as a career. I don't want to have to lean on asking people for money as a career. I was used to handing people money, not asking people for money, right? Yeah, that's, uh, I'll tell you that I think transitioning, like you said, transitioning from one to the other and needing that time of reflection, there's a certain amount of liberation that's right there where you don't know what the next step is. And I'm sure if you had asked yourself at any point in your life, do I, am I going to be an executive producer? The answer would have been like, A, like what you said, what the heck is that? And B, not a chance. So I love the journey of the walk, the unknown walk of life. And this is something I kind of always aspire to is never have really like that five-year plan. And Toss it out the window and you can have a desire of maybe where you want to go, but that path to get there is going to be drastically different for everybody and at any different time. So love the the complete 180, if you will, from family business, somewhat known, maybe <clears throat> predictable, even though you, no one could have probably predicted the 08. But outside of that, you know, you knew what you were getting into. You rose up the ranks inside the company and it, it was it was something co probably comfortable into the complete unknown. So Love that uh, vulnerability and sharing that. So thank you, and and also for you know kudos to you for embracing something that you literally knew nothing about and said tossed all caution to the wind and said I'm going to go try it. And to, to to second that is to tell a story that's so unique and personal to your upbringing, to our upbringing, being in Ohio, that uh, you know the world probably doesn't know about this. And the and. and Dayton, Ohio, the first game, and I don't know if many people know this either, but the NFL was headquartered for a period of time in Columbus and had offices yep. here. And it's it's yep. one of those things in history that to be part of, and now you're part of telling the story and getting it out there. And, you know, two things I was disappointed about in uh, in your launch. One, your, uh, you decided to have your, your red carpet opening on my birthday, so I couldn't attend So I because I had prior uh, And secondly, I you were launching this in AMC theaters for one day only in, uh, in major football markets. Yeah. I was in Vegas and just not, at, not at the right time. I was so bummed. I want, I wanted to well, see that movie. If this so makes bad. you feel better about the Vegas thing in the AMC, uh, long story short, and it's not positive. AMC had a glitch in their software. I came to find out. And anytime anybody in any of those major football market cities went online to buy their tickets, the response immediately online through AMC said, oh, it's sold out. So people were calling our director, our people were calling our director saying, hey, man, congratulations. You sold out Los Angeles. La, 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 la. He's, no, we didn't. And he calls AMC 
three days before it was the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. Yep. We were supposed to be in all the AMCs across the United States. And I come to find out that there was this software glitch and I don't think anybody bought any tickets uh, and all those theaters sat completely. I know Jimmy. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So don't feel bad, Ed. Nobody yeah, else. got Right. To see it no, nobody else saw it. Okay, good. <laughs> but I, I am excited to, to watch it. And then it's uh, I think it's great that you're part of this and telling well, the story. So. And if you got a couple minutes, I'd love to really tell you what my teeth are deeply into right now. Cause I, 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 again, I think I figured out through trial and error. I don't like asking people for money as much as I do uh, being the giver, not the taker, um, is, uh, and it all happened through LinkedIn. Um, I, found, I found these three young entrepreneurs, and when I mean young, they're, they're beyond half my age. Uh, they were seniors at University of Central Florida. They were looking for somebody to be kind of a, kind of a business consultant who had some, who had some uh, experience, I guess, in the food and beverage or the entertainment industry. And I'm like, shoot, I'm going to look into this. And uh, long story short, these guys had developed their own seltzer formula that uh, obviously is alcoholic. It's called a hard seltzer. And they hadn't launched anything yet. But but I said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to take a I'm going to take a gamble on these three guys. I mean, this sounds like a really different kind of a idea at the time. Their formula had collagen in it and protein. And I'm thinking like Jimmy's probably thinking, shit, protein, and I can drink alcohol at the same time. Jimmy's probably going, sign me up. <laughs> well, and all the women in our lives, right? If they can drink a seltzer that's got collagen in it, they'd be shotgunning those things. And that's what was going through my brain. So I went down to Orlando. These guys were all seniors in college. And uh, I really bonded with these guys and believed in these guys. And they ended up giving me a percentage in their company. And so that's what I've actually spent probably predominantly over the last 14 months is helping the brand VIP Hard Seltzer get off the ground in Florida. Um, they're down in Orlando and, and, and I help bring VIP Hard Seltzer up to Columbus, Ohio and the Columbus Distributing Company, the Budweiser Distributor, which is a phenomenal family business here in town, multi-generational. One of the best Budweiser distributors in the United States is the Jenkins family is carrying VIP here now in central Ohio. So I'm I'm kind of it's kind of a cool 362 Ed. I'm kind of back into a family business, a smaller business. I'm kind of back into the grassroots. Um, I just never foresaw myself driving around, you know, at 56 and a half, handing out cans of seltzer, trying to get people to drink it. So you never know, but yeah. you never know what doors are going to open themselves. And I think we have a uh, we have a phenomenal product. Everybody who's tried this product tries it, and they go. This is this is the best seltzer I've ever had. Um, the flavors are better. We lowered the carbonation. We doubled the fruit juice. It's all natural ingredients, and um, so we've done really, really well with it. I just am in those beginning, almost an embryo stage of of getting this thing up and rolling. And so that's that's really my new passion right now is trying to help VIP and the brand and getting it out uh, more in the state of Ohio. This is what we stumbled across. You guys know what the number one hard seltzer consumption state is in the United States. I don't know if either one of you guys drink hard seltzers. I do not. Take a stab. Just take a stab. What the number one state in the United States for consumption of hard seltzer is? Don't tell me Ohio. I I, I would guess either New York or California. It's Ohio. I didn't <laughs> wow. even know it. That's crazy. 
See, I would have thought it'd be like a warmer state, you know, like a Florida or a California where people are outside and it's warm and you're drinking a cold, hard seltzer, right? Mm -hmm. No, it's yeah, Ohio. Interesting. It's Ohio. So didn't even know that when I got into this thing, but we found that out a couple months ago. So, wow, crazy. Well, that's so what we've exciting. signed. We've signed, the... we've signed, we've got a, uh, a major, major, I guess, an athlete slash rock star slash influencer by the name of Chris Jericho. I don't know, James, oh, if you absolutely. know the band, you know the band Fozzie? The name Ed, is familiar, Ed, knows but no. who, Ed knows who Jericho is from his wrestling, probably. From wrestling, yeah, I was going to say. I, yeah. I, mean, I knew he went, I knew he, uh, I thought he kind of went into a band too so yeah I yeah he's got a band he's i went to a couple crazy, wwe he's got some crazy ass band called fozzy that does heavy metal kind of stuff james so i thought you'd know who fozzy is but um so we've got we the the pieces are coming together and most importantly we got a phenomenal product we got great packaging we got a totally different looking can than everybody else and so again we're still in this embryonic phase but it kind of makes me feel a little bit like I'm back into a family business where when I positively do something, I'm making a direct effect. That's, that's what's, that's, what's really cool. I think on the movie side, everything was so far out of my hands. All I was in charge of um, probably for the best was, was raising monies and raising, you know, interest in the movie, but you know, it wasn't as self-fulfilling for me as, as, as doing something like this where I can push a button or I could go call on somebody and, and make, make something positive out of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank, thanks for, thanks for that. And it's exciting to, to see a new company, you know, build up and that you're part of it. So we'll make sure we include that in the, in the show notes. Well, I need to get you guys some samples. You guys both shook your heads. You don't drink seltzers. So I'll, I'll tell you what, next, next time you have a cigar, session over here at the tinderbox i'll bring some cold uh hard seltzers in with me okay all right i'll, I'll hold you to that yeah for yep. sure yeah you guys will dig yeah. it you guys all right will dig it. good deal well hey that's it this is a this has been a great session i think we'll go into into close wrap out wrap up mode and uh you know closing this out why don't why don't you give uh if you can with with the, with the different experiences that you've had why don't you give a, a piece of advice to aspiring or current entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs, revenue leaders that are trying to like rethink what tomorrow looks like and how to survive today. What's one piece of advice that you've learned along the, along the way that you'd want to share with them? Well, I think that mantra off my workout shorts is the first thing because it's, it's stuck with me. And so far, it's, it's kept me going, which is nothing changes if nothing changes. And, you know, James, the, the one word that I've maintained on my LinkedIn profile that you brought up, too, is evolve. Um, I, I, I was brought up in that coin-op industry that you talked about from a technological standpoint that we needed to help not just better educate ourselves and better train ourselves, but also do that for our customers, right? We had to bring them out of the dark ages. And, you know, by, by, by making our entire city of Columbus all digital and getting rid of 45s and getting rid of CDs, you know, and using a phone app in order to play music in bars and seeing the revenues jump because of that. And, and so I guess um, I, I just saw this from Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. They had their arms around each other. And I saw a comment about a week ago. It said, you know, the one word that both of these two billionaires thrive on or th in Warren's case is the one word that they both have in common to talk about success, Ed, is 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 a one word. What do you think it is? 
Well, part of me wants to say evolve since you just mentioned it. So good. I'll, I'll go with uh, I'll go with that logic reason. Evolve, James. What do you think, Buffett and Gates? They had they both had one word to describe success. What do you think it is? Hmm. I'd say growth. Or, or maybe how about Alpha, this curiosity? Alpha, here's what, curiosity. Here's how about that? Here's what's trippy. Alphabetically, you guys are on both sides of the word. <laughs> <laughs> Alphabetically, you guys. No, it's called focus. Gotcha. Gates, Gates, and and Buffett said, if you got focus, you can you can accomplish anything. You can be mm-hmm. successful at anything. So I think any aspiring young, old, middle aged, uh, you know, guys that want to that, that that and women that want to make that move, I think, is have faith in yourself. Have faith in yourself that that you're you're you've you've been in an industry. You've maybe accomplished everything you can, and maybe you've had that burning desire and that passion to go try something else. And nothing changes if nothing changes. And if you stay in that rut, yeah, it may be comfortable. Yeah, you may have benefits. Yeah, you may have a paycheck. But, you know, both of you guys have challenged yourselves personally and professionally to do what you're doing right now. Um, I, I know James was in the software industry before he got into this. And Ed, I don't know you and your background, but I'm guessing you probably made a lot of hard choices and changes along the way as well. And just have faith in yourself and have that focus that Buffett and Gates talked about. And, you know, passion to me is like gasoline. And and I see it in my oldest son, who is turned into a little movie and videographer, uh, entrepreneur himself. You know, he's followed his passion and flew himself to Alaska in the middle of COVID and worked five jobs in order to be able to put this documentary together, which was a dream of his. And I think that's the testimonial. Hopefully, it sounds like the DNA has found itself to the fifth generation. Um, but nice. again, Ed, to your, to, your, to your point, if there's anybody that's even thinking about it, um, just reach down deep, man. Find out what's your passion and go for it. And I know that sounds like a cliche. I know it sounds simple, but it's really, really hard. It's really hard for people to let go of something that's comfortable. It's hard to let go of that warm blanket and go cold plunge, Jimmy. Are you into yep. cold plunging yet? Are you into it yet? No, man. I've uh, I've been advised. Dude, you got to get into cold plunging, man. It's, it's <laughs> I've unbelievable. Read the books, man. It's but, unbelievable. Uh, so to get rid Ed to take that warm blanket off, get out of that hot shower, and go <laughs> jump into that 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 fifty degree water for a minute or two. Right. It takes a lot of it takes a lot underneath, you know, takes a lot down under here. So that's we'll, all. We'll, have, we'll have, faith yourself, have faith in yourself. Have faith in yourself. Plunge? Andy, can I cold plunge with a cigar? Can I do that? Oh, hell yeah. OK. That <laughs> may we, not stay lit, but I don't think try, you're going to last very long in there. But <laughs> yeah, no, I think just having faith in yourself Ed, and, and believing in yourself and finding a passion, man. I'm so lucky as a father that I think both of my sons have found their passions at a really, really young age. Some people probably never find their passion or pursue it. Um, I'm so blessed and so lucky and so fortunate that I think both my kids at a very young age in their twenties and even sooner found their passions and, and they have stuck with those passions. And I think they're going to continue to, and and no matter how much money is in the bank, man, if you're following a passion, you're going to be glorious for the rest of your life. Yeah, I'll say that's that's the mark of a, a parent is you want to see that unfold with your with your kids is to find their passion and to 
go for it. So yep. that's great. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so Thanks, much, Andy. Guys. You know, let's give a quick shout out. Let's, uh, um, you mentioned VIP Hard Seltzer, but let's share with the audience, where can people find you and the stuff you're working on? Well, probably the most convenient is is either Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn is obviously a, an incredible resource for for business people, and, and and I do have a consulting business on the side. I think you can tell from this incredible opportunity with you guys. I have a lot of knowledge in the family business aspects. You know, um, James has been a, a lighthouse and a guide for me for for quite a long time, and um, I learned a lot and, and a lot of tutelage from him on, on strategic and organizing and sales. Those were, those were things that you're not taught in school. Unfortunately, business schools don't teach that, but, but James is bright enough and has the ability to, to teach people like me that come from a coin op industry that are undereducated. So um, just, yeah, LinkedIn and Facebook are probably the two easiest ways if anybody wants to reach out. And it's a great way for me to learn from other people too. I'm 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 the first person on the planet to say I'm a sponge, and if you ever if you ever let your sponge harden up, then I think you're in trouble. You gotta you gotta be you gotta be a sponge, and you gotta be willing to listen to the Ed Porters and the James Rorys uh, as much as possible because that's the only way we're going to grow, and that's the only that's that's how you're going to evolve is listening to everybody else. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you again for your time, James. It's good as always to see you and and hear yeah. from you and. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Until next time.